Hi, welcome to Herd Nerds. We have a great podcast today. My guest, I can actually say, was hired by the Japanese to teach them how to feed their cattle. I want to welcome Dr. Jimmy Horner. Hi, Dr. Horner. Good morning, Desi. Great to see you. Would you please, for people that don't know you, would you please tell a bit about yourself? Sure, be glad to. Hope I don't bore them too much. But uh, I, uh, I'm a ruminant nutritionist, and um, been uh, doing that for 38 years. This coming uh, January one, and um, uh, love what I do. I get to work with uh, wonderful people, and uh, people that know me typically will will vouch for the fact that I claim to be the most blessed man on the face of the earth because I, I get to do what I love. I get to work with people that I love and I have the most amazing family and friends that anybody could have. So I consider myself an extremely blessed man, but I, uh, <clears throat> started my career about 38 years ago. I actually, uh, started working with Wagyu cattle. It will be 30 years. It's coming April. Uh, when I was first invited to, uh, to travel to Japan, and it's been quite a journey. It's been an awesome journey. Learn, have learned so much, uh, and uh, continue to learn. I think that's very important for any of us. Uh, we can never stop learning. We can never stop the desire to learn. And um, uh, a lot of folks gave me the opportunity. Have believed in me, and uh, and I'll forever be indebted to them. But uh, the um, if you want me to share initially. When I was first invited to go to Japan back in April of 94, it was uh, actually to do dairy seminars. A good friend of mine, Tom Van Bleet, Escalon, California, his family uh, had a large surge dairy equipment supply business and been, had been doing business in Japan and other places, obviously. And uh, through his contact, they had asked um, me to come over and, and uh, conduct seminars throughout the country. And so that for the first several visits, that's what we did. And uh, large gatherings, typically 100, 200, 300 folks in attendance, uh, uh, dairy producers, waggy producers. And we'll talk about that more here a little bit, I'm sure. Many times those are one in the same as most dairies over there also on waggy cattle. And um, veterinarians, co-op personnel. And uh, we did that for a number of years. And that's how I began. Uh, my kind of my, my journey in Japan and, but folks that know me, the, the seminars are great, but I love being on the farm and I love being with the people and the cattle. And so I asked if we could start visiting some of the farms and that's what we did. And then that's, that's how I ended up getting into the Wagyu end of things because me, the dairyman also owned Wagyu cattle and, uh, and asked and started asking me to help them with their Wagyu cattle. So that's kind of how my journey began this uh, over this past 30 years. And I think our listeners want to know, uh, I'd like for you to tell them how different it is what, raising the Wagyu in Japan than what most people do over here and the requirements that the cattle need here in order to get their genetics expressed to the best level. You've done a lot of research in that and studying that and nutrition uh, research. And I just can't wait for you to tell everybody about it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, be glad to. The, 
the, the first thing that we have to uh, acknowledge is we have a totally different production system as a whole here in the U.S. Uh, for our cattle, our Wagyu cattle specifically, than uh, how the Japanese manage them. The, uh, they primarily, um, majority of their Wagyu cattle are not bred. They're, they're implanted with embryos. Um, many of the first calf heifers may actually be uh, uh, inseminated with, with Wagyu semen and produce F1 calves as they're much more valuable than, say, a Holstein calf uh, there. And the same here also. We do have more more dairies here doing the same thing along those lines now, but uh, so the 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 dam never um, really gets to express much maternal instinct. Uh, also, because they typically uh, remove the calves from mom uh, by day three. The overwhelming majority of the calves in Japan are bottle fed by hand, yes. or they're on a an automatic milk feeder or an automatic nurse cow, you want to call them, where the calf can go up four, six, eight, ten times per day and nurse from a, from a machine. But very few of the waggy producers will leave the calves on the cow longer than three days. They'll allow them to get their colostrum. Uh, many of them will take them off day one and actually feed them a colostrum replacer. Um, mm. And so they're, they're virtually never on mom. So we, we have taken that same... Uh, breed and put it in a totally different production system here in the States. Um, of all the folks we work with here in the United States and North America, I can count on one hand those producers that actually bottle feed or have their calves bottle fed at a local dairy or something, their waggy calves. So it's a totally different production system and, and it presents a lot of challenges nutritionally and uh, management-wise to get the most out of those cows, cows and those calves. Yeah, I know. Uh, and I'd like to make this comment that that is one of the reasons why the black Wagyu females usually don't have very big bags. And that, and uh, that's because it, genetically it's been bred out of them because they never raise their calves. Do you agree with that, Dr. Horner? That, large part, Daisy, that is absolutely correct. And we've taken that same female over here and, and many other places outside Japan and tend to leave that calf on that female for four, six, eight months, maybe on a 20,000 acre pasture and expect them to do well. And that's not what they're designed for. And we, we can, we can produce them under that system. We just have to make, we have to make some adjustments uh, management wise and nutritionally uh, to help that calf because of uh, the inherent nature of that, that cow and her, her lack of milk production, her lack of maternal instinct, and it's not her fault. It's just a production system that that breed has come come from in Japan, where that female is, is primarily a uterus in Japan, whereas here we expect her to do everything, and so we have to help her. And that's that's where the difference comes in. The when the when they're in our production system over here, I always say this that if you have a calf on a waggy female, creep feeding is not an option. That calf has to be creep fed. In fact, the cow will probably even need to be regrained as well while that calf is on her just to help her milk production uh, because of the, uh, the genetic predisposition uh, due to how she's handled and managed in Japan. If we do that, uh, we, can, we can help the calf quite a bit, but we also, not only that, 
uh, feeding them a high protein, a high energy uh, creep feed is important. Keeping the mama fed where she can produce as much milk as possible. And uh, then also minimizing the stress in both of them while that calf is on that cow is of critical importance. That's another big difference in how we typically uh, manage Wagyu cattle here in the States versus Japan, because many of them in Japan will never be outside a, an enclosed facility or a barn. Again, we're here, they may be on a very large uh, ranch and uh, sometimes with, with almost no shelter, no facilities. So we have two drastically different production systems with the same breed and we can do well, but we have to help them along and do some things uh, differently than what maybe our mindset has led us to through the years. Uh, one thing I did for my small herd, and I don't know, this this may not even be right, but I, I bought a couple of milk cows and, uh, you know, bred them. And then when they had their babies, it was like two or three Wagyu babies were also nursing off those milk cows uh, in order to get enough milk. And for those of those people doing uh, percentage animals, uh, a lot of their uh, cows are going to have nice big bags and in the first few days they're going to have plenty of milk and actually the one of the things I've noticed about Wagyu calves is they are gone to whoever has a bag you know I mean they know who their mommy is but they 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 don't hold back about going and getting some milk have you noticed that I mean is it just me or I just they're they're unbelievably um, they're headed out for that milk bag yeah, they've got that nature and you can't blame them. You know, they're looking for no. food and they're, they're going to do whatever they can to find it, um, which is key. And, and Desi, I want to say too, though, with that, that that is a limitation in our Wagyu breed. It continues to be a limitation. I'm not a geneticist. I'm a nutritionist, but I always stress to our clients that they emphasize milk yield potential through their, through their breeding programs uh, to help. And we do have we do have herds here in North America that are making great strides uh, in in the cow's milk production. First calf heifers, uh, and you can you can see it. You can see it in the calves. Um, but it's got to be an intentional effort. We cannot just look at marbling in this breed. We've got to look at that's that's another thing we have to look at is the milk yield and stress that uh, to help these cows be able to excel in our production system and and the calves. The other the other key is the, the nutritional plane that that calf is exposed to through feed, milk intake, and so forth is also critical in impacting the potential marbling score or quality grade of that calf later on down the road. So it's very critical that we, we help that cow as much as possible and uh, to, to get the most out of that calf. So, Dr. Horner, at what age do you recommend that people... Um take uh, the calf, wean the calf, uh, what is the optimal age to start them on a very good, I mean, creep should be there from the time they're born, I think, and, and I do feed my mamas too, and I make sure my mamas get feed even in their third trimester, but, you know, I'm overkill most of the time, but uh, just, can you just tell everybody uh, what you feel is optimal for calf production? Yeah, Desi. Uh, typically, uh, I would say I, I, I actually try to stay away from uh, being dead set on an age. 
but if I had to choose one, I would say most of the Wagyu calves around four months of age. Most of our top producers will have them off that full blood female by about four months of age, but that will vary. Uh, no question. Uh, and one, one uh, big factor is how well that calf is eating. That, that's the most critical criterion for determining when a calf should be, should be weaned more than anything else. And if that calf is eating, say, two pounds of starter or creep feed consistently uh, and the, the rumen function is starting to develop extremely well, uh, that calf is, is, is basically getting ready to be weaned and ready. So, so the, the, the number one criterion is the amount of feed intake on that calf. That's the most critical thing. Calf's eating well. You, we, we've, had, we've had producers both here in the States and Japan wean them as young as two months of age. Now that's pushing it, I will say, but it's simply because the calves were eating so well and were so healthy, never missed a beat, and they, they've done it and they continue to do it. Typically around four months of age, if they're on, um, if they are on a, uh, a recip, if they're on like a, uh, uh, like you talk about sometimes, if they're, on, if they're on a dairy cow for sure, or on a, an Angus type influence animal or something with Simmental or something else in it, uh, you can maybe go five, six months. Typically, I, I prefer to see them off of, uh, no longer than six months. But I will say that, and I, I've said this many times through the years, if you leave a, a full-blood Wagyu calf on a full-blood Wagyu mama longer than that four to six-month window, you're not doing either one of them a favor, the, neither the calf no. nor the female. And, uh, and they've got to be off. And, but the primary criterion is how well that calf is eating. And that's why you've got to, as you do, you know, uh, offer them that creep feed as early as possible after birth. And it's amazing how often I've seen them go up. Actually, I've seen the calf born in the morning. And by that afternoon, they were already up going and nibbling and smelling of the creep feed the first day. Yeah. And I find that hard to believe, but they're very curious anyway. And you expose them to that. But the other key is the, the earlier that they're exposed to the dry feed, the more they're eating that grain, the faster their rumen develops. We also, that's the other, that's the other uh, I'm going to say, challenge in this breed, in my opinion, in addition to milk yield and maternal instinct in the females, is feed efficiency, conversion of nutrients to growth and to tissue and uh, so the, the earlier you can get them eating, the, the, the faster the rumen develops and everything will be more accelerated all the way through their life as a result. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and mine do eat. And let me tell you, those calves, you have to be careful about what's in your pastures, too, because those little calves will pick up everything. They'll eat oak leaves. They, I've seen them pick up sticks. They, they're like kids, you know, they'll put put anything they're just put anything in their mouth drink out of mud puddle i just you know i'm like oh my god what are we going to do with this calf you know it's, you're right I, I wish i i wish i had the picture with me one time i went out on some of ours and uh i looked in this this calf i wanted what has he got around his head and he had one of the, the white plastic lawn chairs around his head and walking around the, the, the with that lawn chair on his head and that was that was a lot of time. That's right. Yeah, their, their curiosity. You got to be careful with them. <laughs> that, 
Got to be careful. That's right. So um, uh, let our listeners know uh, what, okay, so we have our calves and we've got them on creep and they're doing really good. Uh, I have heard you talk before about stages of of feeding our Wagyu cattle. Yes. Yeah, we, we typically, we, uh, we recommend a high energy, high protein. And when people, people might say, well, I want to watch a high energy, high protein creep. Well, it's not a 12 to 14% protein standard creep that you will find in most feed stores here in the United States that are, that are intended for traditional or conventional beef cattle. Uh, one of the, the first things I learned as in my, in uh, my experience in Japan <clears throat> Well, the, the, the Wagyu uh, have uh, nutritional requirements much more comparable to dairy breeds and not the other beef breeds. They, they typically require more protein, more energy, uh, oftentimes just more help. Uh, they also are a little more finicky. Oftentimes they're not quite as aggressive as, say, an Angus calf. So that's going to be a highly palatable feed. So on our, on our stages, typically we'll have a, that starter stage, that first uh, preferably that first zero to four months of age <clears throat> where they're on that uh, a minimum of 18% protein. We have some herds that have a heavy Tajima breeding in their Wagyu cattle. The strain that is, you know, higher marbling, smaller frame, right. less milk, less growthy, a uh, little, little less thrifty as calves, especially they will feed as high as a 20 or 22% protein creep. If they're heavy, if their herd is heavy Tajima breeding. So typically a creep feed will be, uh, 18 to 22 percent protein, uh, no more than 12 percent fiber in it. Those calves don't need that indigestible fiber at that stage. They need the protein and they need starch. Uh, <clears throat> so that's what we recommend and highly palatable. Then we take them from there, transition them over to what we call a grower or developer feed. This is where we're, we're really teaching them to eat. We're trying to grow frame. We're trying to grow, you know, to expand the rib and the body capacity of the calf during this time. We don't want to fatten them. That, again, requires a higher protein uh, feed and higher energy than what we typically would feed a growing beef calf over here. And we typically will have herds drop from that 18 to 20% creep feed down to around 16% or so, depending on the forage that they're feeding. If they're feeding alfalfa, you can feed a little lower protein in your grain. If you're feeding a grass or small grain forage, you may need the protein. But again, a, a very high, highly palatable feed. But there we're just basically preparing them for either the breeding herd or the finishing phase. We want to grow them, uh, put structure on them, not fatten them. That also is a stage that's very critical if you're producing replacement females. Uh, you, you don't want to overfeed them during this stage as we have quite a bit of evidence through the years that if we overfeed these replacement females prior to puberty, uh, we're going to put more, basically more fat cells in their udders and less milk secreting cells in their udders. The problem with that, we already have a breed that doesn't milk that great already. Then if we overfeed these heifers, replacement females, and we get them too fat and we get get fat deposited in the udder, we're going to limit their milk production even more than it's already limited genetically. So you've got to be careful not to over-condition the replacement heifers. We typically will not feed them as much as we'll feed a, uh, as we'll feed a meat prospect. But after, after they're weaned, we recommend that replacement females and, and developing bull calves be separated from all the meat prospects. And they're fed totally differently. The meat prospects will be fed more grain, obviously. <clears throat> 
sometimes even even again they may even be a, a fed through a self feeder creep feeder during that time. Uh, then the key is during that time there from from weaning to the time they enter the breeding herd or finish phase. Um, we want again we want to grow them, not fatten them. Then at that point, then we will recommend our our program typically is a two phase finisher phase. We'll have a we'll have a temporary receiving ration oftentimes where they first uh, enter the, the phase one finishing. But then from basically that they will they will initially start around nine to ten months of age. That's our recommendation. That's where many of the Japanese will start the calves on finishing around nine to ten months of age. Uh, uh, no less than four hundred pounds ideally. We put them on the finishing phase and the full bloods will be on that phase and that diet. Again, that will still be a higher protein diet than what you would feed a, an Angus calf. No question. Typically, instead of a, say, a 11 or 12% protein, that phase one finisher in our program will be a 14 to 15% protein in total diet. Again, during that time, they will be on that anywhere maybe from 10 months to a year. Then we move them over to our phase two or what we call our pre-harvest phase and um, move them onto a higher energy ration, lower protein, still higher protein again than what a commercial calf would get. That's also where we typically will uh, restrict the vitamin A uh, based on research from Dr. Flaherty and his group at Ohio State, based on research from Japan. We know by restricting vitamin A during that, uh, that final phase, and no later than 23 months of age, that we can accelerate marbling anywhere from 10 to 30 percent during that last phase. And wow. on that phase, typically three to six months, and then they'll be harvested. That's that's the traditional track that a meat animal will go through. On, on full bloods, what we typically recommend on age at harvest, our most the majority of our clients uh, will be 24 to 28 months of age. At harvest, I would say uh, the overwhelming majority of them now <clears throat> would be in that window with the full bloods. We'd still do have a few hardliners, <laughs> I call them, that will go up around the 30 months, sometimes still in excess of that, but but less and less. When I first started traveling to Japan, Desi, back in 94, it was not uncommon for me to see cattle over there be fed all the way to 36 months before they were harvested. That's right. And, uh, I saw and that in Japan as well. Very, very common. Now, now they're doing much the same as our producers over here. They're 24 to 30 months of age. Again, most of them 24 to 28. And I think three, now three of the national carcass champions in Japan in the last five years have been uh, 28 months of age or less. I think one of them was actually 25 months of age and that got everybody's attention. Uh, so we know these cattle do not have to be fed out as long, but in order to do that, they've got to be started off right. And, and everything has got to be, every I needs to be dotted and, <clears throat> and T crossed all the way through to be able to achieve that. If, you're, if it's taken you longer to feed your cattle out, you've either, you've either uh, not done something you should have done early on in their life, or you've, you've maybe got too caught up in inbreeding and that's one that's one thing we have seen in, in, in the, the Wagyu cattle, in my experience, with the inbreeding is a significantly reduced performance and even even greater impaired feed efficiency. So it will take longer. But most of the most of the producers and our recommendations, 24 to 28 months on a full blood, 20 to 24 months on an F1 Angus cross. Now, if you cross that Wagyu with a dairy animal, a uh, 
uh, say Holstein or Jersey, you're going to need to be prepared to feed them out just like a full blood. They will take longer as well. They will not feed out as quickly as an Angus Wagyu cross. So, right. And but I will say, Doctor Horner, that during COVID, uh, people were stuck sometimes keeping their cattle longer. Uh, than they wanted to. And when I would grade them, I would say I saw higher marbling scores on carcasses for people that did keep their animals longer. I mean, have you seen that? Yeah, you know, that that's the thing. <clears throat> they never stop marbling. This breed's amazing when it comes to that. They never stop marbling. The, the only thing you see is that at a certain time out there, typically from my experience and what I've been told by the Japanese, typically on most full bloods around 32 months of age, <clears throat> the problem you see is they continue to marble. However, the uh, the rate of that marbling is superseded by the rate of, of, uh, of sub-Q fat deposition, external fat, okay. and internal body fat around the organs. So they will continue to marble, but it becomes almost somewhat, it becomes very inefficient because they're, they're actually putting on subcutaneous fat and kidney, heart, and pelvic fat at a higher rate than they are the marbling. The other thing you run into is that animal's immune system begins suffering when you get all that fat accumulating around their internal organs. Also, again, they will fall off on efficiency. They'll fall off on feed intake. And it's just risky to take them out that long. But Desi, I'm with you. We, we had some herds. We had a herd in South America in Chile that we worked with, uh, Moyendo Wagyu, that uh, relied primarily on exports of their Wagyu beef to Europe. And during that time, uh, they couldn't, exports were closed off for about six months. So we had to, we had to go to a holding pattern to try to hold those cattle, not, not allow them to lose weight. If they lose weight, they'll lose marbling. You want, we had to at least have them maintained. Right. And, uh, but they also hired, saw higher marbling scores during that time. So, no, you're right. They will continue marbling. The other thing that we have seen through the years is <clears throat> there's, a, there's a pretty good correlation with uh, days on feed and age at harvest with, with fineness of the marbling as well. So yes. I think that's one thing uh, people tend to forget about, that we want the marbling, but typically chefs really like that really fine, uh, small fine marbling, marbling. As well texture is concerned and in our experience that you know there is a genetic component of that too no question but in our experience too the longer you leave them on feed you will have not just more marbling but it will be of a finer texture as those fat cells begin differentiating they begin basically breaking apart there later on in the feeding period so there are benefits to it but you just have to keep in mind there's also tremendous risk the longer you leave that calf on feed, also they become less efficient and it, there's an economic component. So the, the, uh, many, of our, many of our clients try to get as much marbling as they can as, and get it as fine as they can, but get it done between that 24 to 28 months of age. And, uh, and we have a number of them that are, that are doing that. Well, you know, the uh, Triple Crown, we have... Uh, in your when you f send in your ribeye, uh, part of the questioning is uh, what you fed, uh, the what it what the animal weighed, 
the hot carcass weight, and the age at harvest. And we've got a lot of, uh, we're doing right now, taking all of that data and doing a, like you said, which I, I found it very interesting, doing a fineness of marbling based on the age of harvest and the the feed composition. And I think it's going to be really interesting when we get that information out. Yeah, Daisy, and you've been you've been so instrumental and so committed to uh, to generating, collecting that data. And uh, I, th- I feel like our industry is indebted to you, and will be for years to come. We appreciate that. And, well, and how you, you basically <laughs> initiated that and you carried it through. Well, you know, uh, raising these cattle affects my pocketbook too. So we need all the information we can on how to stream, streamline this and educate ourselves because knowledge is power when it comes to raising cattle. And it's very, you know, it's not cheap to uh, raise cattle and we have to make sure not only that we raise them, but that we also get, you know, our money back uh, in the production of the Wagyu. And so what you're doing, you're your feed uh, is just amazing uh, what you know about how to feed them. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're telling everybody listening because they're going to take this home today and make some adjustments in their programs. I know I am, I'm really bad about keeping them too late and probably overfeeding my females. I've got to, I'm going to reevaluate my program today after hearing about the females. (laughs) that's awesome Desi I'm sure you're doing a good job we can always fine tune and do better but I do want to say one thing if you allow me indulge me for a minute is um, that there have been numerous folks instrumental that have been instrumental in in teaching me you know like I say this is a 30 year journey and and I I grew up on a dairy farm here in Texas I was invited to go to Japan primarily to, to you know, work with dairy cattle, help dairy producers. Found out very quickly, most of the dairymen also are waggy producers. And uh, I thought it was all a, a basic, a, a, a very patriotic uh, endeavor on their part. When I, I every dairy I went to, I'd see waggy. And I, boy, they, this is their national breed. And everybody's really patriotic and wants to have their waggy breed. And then several years later, I found out they all get a property, a nice little property tax break. So they're all about the money too, just like we are over there. But, uh, <laughs> but I did learn that. That's how many of them have. But, but uh, one of the first ones, uh, one of, I just want to mention this. Uh, my primary mentor in Japan was a fellow named Yoshihisa, Yoshihisa Nakamura in Miyazaki Prefecture. And Mr. Nakamura was the first one that actually oh, gave me an opportunity to actually formulate his diets for his Wagyu cattle. And uh, he was one of the, those that just constantly thinking out of the box. I believe he was four, a fourth-generation Wagyu producer. And I'll never forget the day he he asked me, he said, Jimmy, can you also help me with my Wagyu cattle? And I said, Mr. Nakamura, I'd be glad to, but I don't know a dang thing about them. <laughs> and, and he started chuckling. He started chuckling. I think he appreciated my honesty. He says, well, that's okay. Uh, you know everything about the inside. I will teach you about the outside. And so we kind of had a deal there. And he mentored me up until his death uh, a few years ago. Uh, he died of pancreatic cancer very, very quickly and, mm. and just devastated me. But he was my primary mentor, gave me that first opportunity. From the time he first asked me to to help him with his Wagyu cattle, I think I traveled over there to his place and his neighbors and friends and other places probably 10 to 12 times during that three, three and a half year period 
but from the time he asked me, it was about three years before I delivered his first set of rations to him for his Wagyu cattle because I was so uh, ignorant of the breed. I'll just say it. I didn't know anything about them. Two, I didn't. I wanted to treat them with utmost respect and learn as much as I could about them. I knew they were different from our Angus breeds and other breeds here, and I wanted to respect that. And and so we. That's how. That's how it initially started. And then um, uh, also um, uh, Mr. Tanashi Salamoto up in Obihiro, Hokkaido, the Northern Island. He was uh, he was a dairy and a waggy producer, and he is is uh, he was very instrumental. He actually approached me after one of the seminars early on uh, uh, about some of our all natural products that we had. The Japanese have been producing all natural beef forever. And uh, it's been, you know, uh, kind of a, you know, last 10, 20 year thing for us here in the States. They've been on natural forever. And uh, so he, he was interested in that. So we started uh, exporting through him, his company, a protocol of Japan. I ended up licensing them to use a name. We had a large uh, a group of folks, a very, very good team uh, that helped us. Uh, and then they even, I think we had 20 some odd of the Japanese come over and visit our manufacturing plant that we built in 2001. That was quite an experience having 20 so Japanese guests here, uh, but we loved it. But Mr. Nakamura, Mr. Salmoto, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Kawaki down in uh, Kyushu, Tanagashima, uh, Nobu Murakami in Kobe. I could go on and on. Uh, Kim Akiyama, <clears throat> Kim Akiyama from the States, uh, was my translator for many, many years. He totally spoiled me. That's why I don't speak good Japanese to this day because I was so spoiled by Kim's prolific um, ability to translate, and she was wonderful on the farm. So, and so that was kind of and when we we worked in Japan for about eighteen years, helping them uh, establishing relationships, and then in in the fall of two thousand twelve. At the at the Wagyu Olympics in Sasebo, Japan, uh, who walks by the Protocol Japan booth that I was sitting in with one of my clients, but Mr. Bob Estrin from Lone Mountain Ranch in New Mexico, and uh, Grant Robinson at the time was managing Cane Ridge cattle in in Paris, Kentucky, and at the time the executive director of AWA, David Beatty, and they uh, they walk by. They did a double take, you know, because I don't look like your typical Japanese. <laughs> and they, they came back by and then uh, we struck up a conversation. They got to meet one of my clients there that was visiting there in the booth. And uh, we got back home and uh, I believe Grant Robinson was my first client in the U.S. Bob Estrin was my second. And uh, and then we uh, they, they are still customers and close friends to this day. And, uh, and, uh, it's just, it's just, and my, my, and my wife also happened to be with me, my wife, Teresa, um, she passed away a couple of years ago, but she, uh, she loved traveling. So she was with me that, that year in 2012, when we met those folks and basically my life has never been the same. They, they realized, I found out that I'd been working with the Japanese for 18 years at that time, pretty much in obscurity. And, uh, and then, then when I got home, Bob and Grant were ringing my phone off the wall and that's when we started working with the producers here in the U.S. And now we're very fortunate to work with about 300 producers total here in the U.S. and Japan and a few other countries. Uh, but that's that's I just wanted to just mention that it prefaced everything else is that there were there were numerous individuals that were very much key influencers on me. Uh, 
taunt me, brought me alone. Even even here in the States with Bob Estrin, Grant Robinson, Sheila Patink, and many others, uh, I've learned so much. And uh, uh, and their passion. I mean, they're, they're, there's, there are folks here in the States whose passion actually match some of the top producers we work with in Japan. And I love it because I, I can tend to be very passionate, maybe sometimes too much so. But that's kind of how the, the preface on the nutrition aspects we can continue talking about. I just wanted to share that, that that's kind of how things evolved uh, with me and, and the Japanese. But there have been numerous individuals that have mentored me, taught me, and I continue to learn every day. In many cases, too, I will tell you, uh, much of my learning also has been from the, the herdsmen or the people that actually spend time with the cattle, not necessarily the owners. The owners have taught me a lot, managers but the folks that, that do the day in, day out grind uh, with those calves, with those cows, uh, I never, ever um, uh, take lightly uh, as far as their input, their insight. And, and I continue to, to, uh, to learn to, from, from them this, this, to this day. And I typically, when I will go visit a, a farmer ranch, much of my time while I'm there, I'll be spending with those folks that are that are involved with the daily activities uh, because I, I feel it's just so key because they're the ones th those folks that are taking care of those cattle day in day out feeding them doctoring them so so forth uh, that's where it all is that's where it all is and the thing is if if they do not buy in if they do not understand <clears throat> if they're confused I'm I'm pretty much useless my, my effectiveness is completely limited and completely dependent on those people taking care of those cattle day in, day out. So I have a lot of respect for them and I, and I rely on them heavily. Yes. And um, I want to go back a little bit to what you said. Um, where was it was um, what you worked with? The, I know that the, where you worked, they produce better cattle actually. And it's been recorded and, there's data on it than Kobe, but the Kobe has gotten all of the kudos, so to speak, because of their advertising. But I want people to know that um, there are other perfectures that produce cattle that are exceptional. And I believe there's, uh, is it Missyaga, where they produce nothing but female um, cattle for, uh, because the females have higher marbling than the the males is that correct i'm not sure which prefecture it is but i will tell you there are a lot of females fed out in japan we've got an individual that's in the tatori prefecture that feeds out about 1700 head per year and they're all females uh mm -hmm. but, I, but there are a lot of females fed out in the miyazaki miyazaki prefecture as well but miyazaki as he's same as here he's same as here you know in in the uh our facility we have here at Protocol Farms, our Waggy Feeding and Research Center, uh, we have almost a thousand head in, in, in one barn right now today. And I would say probably almost half of those are females. Uh, the, the data I've seen through the years, both in Japan and here, it's not uncommon for a heifer uh, to have a, a two, somewhere between a two to 5% higher IMF score on average than right. this year. So yes, and, and, and some of the... Uh, some of the highest, some of the BMS 12 cattle we've seen out of our facility here, many of the BMS 12 cattle I've seen in Japan uh, will have been heifers as well. So they, they typically do marble higher, and many folks in Japan feel like they are actually uh, 
more economical uh, to feed mm-hmm. than the steers. Because they gain weight yeah. faster. Um, also, the heifers don't gain weight faster necessarily, but they put on, they don't have that thing we call testosterone in them. <laughs> and so they, so they deposit more fat intramuscularly and everywhere else. Uh, it may actually take them you know, a month or two longer to feed out, but they, they do deposit that intramuscular fat at a higher rate and, and degree than the, than the steers. So it's not uncommon, like say here and in Japan, some of the highest grading uh, individuals that we have seen through the years have been females. No question mm-hmm. on the wagon. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have seen in the Triple Crown uh, Steak Challenge, we've had um, grand champion uh, steaks uh, from your feeding protocol, and we've had uh, fineness of marbling, uh, and I checked, and it was from your feeding protocol. So I know that it works. I know that uh, you know what you're talking about. And so I hope everybody takes what you say to heart because we've seen it in the triple crown. Um, And I I also want to bring up, I know that here in the South, we just can't get, you know, certain, we we can't get alfalfa, you know, at a a reasonable price like they can out West. So I guess you, you, um, know the differences in uh, the regions as to what they're they can enhance their herds with feed wise by region. Yeah, Daisy, that that's a very good point. And uh, you know the the uh, uh, <clears throat> the 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 key is knowing what you have as a producer, knowing what you have to feed. So most producers, obviously, the forage component is going to be their their primary component in their in their feeding program. So you've got to have it tested. Uh, I harp on that all the time. We've got to have it, the, the forage has to be tested. We have to have a nutritional profile from a reputable laboratory. And once I have that, it really doesn't matter what the quality is. I mean, we, we like prefer average to good quality, but even if you have lower quality, we can work with that as long as we know what we have. And so all that means is, <clears throat> excuse me, all that means is, is that if you've got a lower quality forage, we just got to supplement more. We've got to we've got to fortify those rations more so than if you have a higher quality forage. The uh, and a, a note I'll mention on the alfalfa. Alfalfa is a very good feed, and especially through through the the uh, younger stages of the calves. Uh, cows uh, do great on alfalfa. Minimizes your supplementation and supplementation cost. And and uh, but oftentimes we have to say we can't get it or it's it's just cost completely cost prohibitive, and that's okay. We'll work with grass hay, small grain hay. Uh, my goodness, I've seen it all. Straw, you know, the Japanese feed a lot of rice straw. We don't feed all that here. And then there's only really one thing in rice straw, and that is fiber. <laughs> Not much of anything else. Uh, but we work with that. We just have to supplement accordingly based on what we have. And you can do fine. And then actually, as a, as a cattle on the finishing uh, programs, you don't even have to have the real high quality forage. Uh, uh, I, still, I still like a, a decent quality as far as digestibility and intake potential. Uh, the, the, uh, the lower quality you have, the less you're going to be able to eat of the total ration. But we can deal with all those. Um, the key, the key is that we have to know what we have, and we can balance the ration accordingly uh, for anyone. We just know what's in that forage, and uh, that that's where everything starts and ends. 
And that also is the, the one component of the ration that you maximize. It's typically the least expensive part of the, the feeding program. So we need to know what's in that. Then we build everything. So typically, our uh, all of our clients, uh, 300 or so of them, uh, they, the, the rations may all be totally different. Uh, we try to individualize our formulations based on the forage that that customer is feeding. And then, and then we will... We will maintain that, and if the forage changes, they, they get a new cutting, it's new hay season, get a new load, whatever, we'll make adjustments as necessary or as often as we need to. But the key is knowing what you have, then, then delivering a properly balanced <clears throat> profile of nutrients into those cattle day in, day out, and being consistent also on how you feed them and how you manage them day in, day out. I have a question for you, Dr. Horner. Does it, I've read a lot of different things, but does it matter that you feed them at the same time that you keep a very consistent schedule or is that, is that important in the digestion in the rumen of the cattle? No doubt, no, no doubt, no question. You've got to be consistent in how you feed them. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to actually cause digestive upsets. You're going to cause issues like bloat, off feed. Also, you want to try to maintain a steady state environment in that animal's digestive system. So the more consistent you can be with your and I, and I will tell you, we've got folks in the U.S. here that are very consistent. But I'll tell you, that's one thing I learned in Japan very quickly. Those folks are committed to consistency. I mean, almost to the nth degree. And I learned that was one of the reasons is you're going to have a healthier animal. The more you can repeat your your practices, your management practices, your feeding uh, the same time every day, basically you're going to have a healthier animal to work with. And a healthier animal is going to be a more productive animal. They're, they're going to be more efficient. They're going to digest their feed more efficiently. They're going to grow better. They're going to produce a, a higher quality carcass. Uh, another healthy animal is never going to never going to meet their genetic potential. And uh, and I always maintain that the Wagyu breed is not more vulnerable to stress than any other breed. But I will no question maintain that the waggy breed has more to lose when they are stressed than any other breed. So the, the more we can do to, to minimize their stress, the more consistent we can be in our approach to those cattle every day, including the feeding, monitoring, uh, so forth, treating, weighing, whatever it may be, uh, the less stress those cattle are going to incur. And that's vital in this breed. We have a breed that has such tremendous potential uh, to give their owners a high return on investment. The, the, the key is we have to provide that animal with an environment to be able to reach that potential. And that's always my, my uh, primary focus. I'll say my entire team through the years, our primary focus is to keep these cattle healthy. That, that, that What's funny, that was the biggest obstacle I encountered working with the Japanese is they just could not accept the fact that some gray-headed, ugly old American would be as committed to the health of their prized Wagyu cattle as they were. And so I learned really quick, I had to earn that confidence and that respect that I was just as committed as they were to keeping those cattle healthy. And and a healthy animal is always going to perform better. So the more you can do on your end to low stress, uh, low stress handling, consistent, uh, very consistent in your approach, 
minimizing the stress that, that they may be exposed to, you know, as far as the climate's concerned, all that, the more you're going to get in the end and the happier you're going to be and the happier that, that animal's going to be in the end. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's very critical that we're, we're, we have a consistent and a, and a very intentional approach to how we manage these cattle. Well, I certainly agree with the stress and I, you know, I can do it because I'm a small producer, but uh, all my cattle can get under, you know, cover if there's inclement weather or, you know, really cold wind. And let me tell you, whenever we have a storm coming, you can look out over my pastures and it looks like I don't own a single cow because they're all... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're all already in there. They know what's coming. They're already in that barn, you know, and, you don't have to have, you don't have to build a Taj Mahal or some kind of castle or mansion for them either. You just have some type of shelter structures, whatever that were to help them get out of those, the, the, the that time of year where they're exposed to the harshest elements some way to protect them. A, a, a wagyu can tolerate cold extremely well if you keep them dry. All right. Mm-hmm. They can also tolerate heat extremely well if you keep them shaded and have some a little bit of air movement. It's amazing. This breed is so durable. I, I've been asked that before. How's this breed? This breed can adapt so well to different environments. How, how's that possible versus many other breeds? Well, if you look at Japan, from north to south, you know, you've got you've got three islands that are basically the size of California and totally if you connected them together. But the, the thing is, in the south, down in Kyushu, uh, like Tanagashima Island, where one of our folks, Mr. Kawaki, is, uh, he's south, actually south of Kyushu. It gets very, very humid and hot down in that part of Japan, extremely humid, much, much like, well, probably more like your area, Alabama, Georgia, Florida. But then you go up and you go through Honshu where Tokyo is and you go up in Hokkaido, the northern island, the biggest island, and uh, their their environment may be more like Minnesota, Wisconsin. And you've got those. It is like cattle. Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so those cattle are being trafficked and, and transferred and moved constantly, being bought and raised and sold through those different climates. So you've got an animal that's had to adapt to, to uh, drastically different uh, climates within that one country. So to me, that's I think that's one reason it lends itself to them once we have them over here in Australia and other places, why they do so well is they have to be that way over there because the, the climate is so diverse from north to south. They're in Japan and they, they, they actually so they can do well under any of those. But we do have to help them at times. And, and I'm always maintaining that if that animal is stressed, you're losing money as a producer. And, and uh, anytime that animal is stressed, if, if that animal is stressed, they're typically going to be losing marbling. That intramuscular fat typically is the first fuel for them to try to stay comfort and maintain that thermal neutral zone or that comfort zone. It's going to be the first energy that's used in the, the majority of the time. Uh, so if you want to preserve marbling, if you want to uh, uh, preserve your investment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. We need to try to minimize stress at all times because uh, they can go backwards so quickly. We did a study several years ago in Iowa with some F1s. And when they were exposed to blizzard-like conditions without any shelter, um, they lost 12% of their marbling in two weeks before they were harvested. Just in two weeks' time, 
in blizzard-like conditions at, at a feedlot in Iowa, F1 Wagyu cattle lost 12% of their marbling. Uh, so it can go, like I say, very quickly uh, if we're not committed to trying to help keep them as comfortable as possible all the time. And I've been stressing that in every uh, podcast about the care. You know, you're going to get back what you put into it, and you've invested so much. You need to go that extra mile and make sure that your cattle are not stressed because why would you want to – that 12% of marbling is a, is a lot of money in feed cost. It really is. Yes, ma'am. And, and, and the bad thing is, you know, that was the last two weeks prior to their – part of them being harvested, you never could get it back. You know, they're stressed mm-hmm. earlier in life. They may rebound and get some of it back. But the problem is you'll, you'll, you'll never, if an animal is stressed, you're never going to attain their full genetic potential. You, you can't, it's, it's not practical to think that we can keep them 100% free of stress. But I feel like our, 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 our job in providing proper husbandry to these cattle is to try to minimize that stress as much as possible. Maybe we can't we can't mitigate it 100, percent but the more we can minimize it, and and that's that's not just a wagyu, that's any cattle. I, I grew up on a, on a dairy, same, same thing. Any any cattle you have, I think you have an obligation to try to minimize stress with those cattle. It's just that when the wagyu cattle are stressed, they are losing more than any other breed I have ever worked with when they're stressed, and owners have got to be cognizant of that and the fact that when they're stressed, the more they're stressed, you'll, you're never allowing them to reach that genetic potential. And that's why we ended up, you know, putting our facility in here at protocol farms. It, it's a, it, it bottom line, it's all centered around cattle comfort. We just want to try to help our producers attain the genetic potential as much as possible in those cattle by providing as, as stress-free of an environment as possible even though it's not one hundred percent stress free, uh, but they're at least in that in that in that facility, basically to try to maximize uh, performance, health, and in in the end, carcass quality uh, by protecting them from as much stress as possible. And uh, that that's one reason. That's one of the main reasons we did this several years ago. Is we we had several clients that had been asking me for years uh, instead of just developing their feeding programs and monitoring those programs for them. Uh, could we also put a facility in uh, to help take care of these cattle to get as, as high quality as possible back? And uh, there now there are a lot of folks around the country that do a good job uh, feeding cattle. There are not a lot of folks around the country that do a good job of feeding Wagyu cattle. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the, the key, but there's more to it. There's more involved. There's more capital involved. There's more management involved. No question. Uh, but if you can do that and justify that, um, it, it, it sure is worth it. And uh, there's nothing make, makes me happier than to uh, get a picture from a customer just with an awesome picture as far as the, the beef quality and or a customer calls me or says, Jimmy, that was the best harvest we've ever had in 25 years. We've never had a harvest like that. That's what keeps me going. It's not necessarily the money or other things, but when I when our our customers are happy and we we see those results, boy, that just like that that juices me up like nothing else, and uh, makes it all worthwhile. 
And I would like to say, too, when you take great care of your cattle uh, and you go to sell them and people consistently know that you have really not, like most of mine are, you know, they weigh really good. They're overfed probably, but um, I don't have a problem selling, you know, weanlings and things like that. People know, and I have repeat customers. And I think when you have a great product and people know that you have a great product, there's no problem moving that product in our in, in the U.S. at all. Do you agree with that, Dr. Horner? I agree. It's key, Desi, no question. And you build, you build that reputation, too. You, know, you take care of your cattle. They're good cattle. They're sound. They're healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, know, they know what they're getting. And then, uh, and then uh, and it's something uh, you know, I harp on all the time, too, is uh, – if you're raising animals for meat, you know, be more committed to the data. Uh, try, try to collect as much data in the interim time. Take care of them and collect as much data as you can. That data is what helps us make good decisions in the future. It's hard to make an informed decision if you don't have a uh, you don't have something to, to manage that animal with as far as records or data. And we're seeing we're seeing over time. I think we're seeing more and more of a commitment here in the states. On uh, you, you've had it from the very beginning. You've encouraged it. You've instigated it. You've been awesome. You've been committed to it on folks uh, uh, collecting more and more data on their cattle over here so we can make better decisions. And I think we're seeing it out in the, uh, the cattle being merchandised. If you want to get top dollar for your cattle, uh, make sure they're healthy, sound, well taken care of, and that you've got some data to back them up and you're not just selling them off based off myth and folklore. That's been done too long in this industry. Right. It's come to an end. And uh and I it appreciate does. the role you played uh, in, in that. And uh, I think that we, we've got a wonderful breed. You know, we're, we're a small breed compared to many. But, boy, there's nothing else like Wagyu. And uh, we've had folks from here and there, I mean, far away, to say, Jimmy, that's the best steak. I've never tasted anything like that ever. Um, and we've got a wonderful product. Uh, but if you want to separate yourself uh, from the pack, take care of your cattle, and uh and collect as much data as you can um and and then even if we go through cyclic times where maybe prices are down or what this and that if you've got you've got a good product and you've got data to back that product up even if prices are down you're still always going to get the best price you're still going to sell your right and uh right we we do uh, that quite a bit and we're seeing more and more folks and it, it thrills my heart to see that here in the states more and more folks are becoming more and more committed to to uh, not just taking care of their cattle properly, which is key, but also uh, more committed to collecting data and in marketing their their cattle back by data. Uh, And that is very refreshing to see. And I have one more. I have a question I should have asked when we were talking about uh, nutrition, but I I really would like to know this because I struggle with it in in what I do. And I want to ask you, what percentage of fat uh, should be in the feed? Because I've seen everything from 3% to 10%. And, you know, I mean, I just really would like to finally get that out in the open about the fat content of feed. Yeah, good question. Well, one, that's going to be dictated by how much starch is in the feed, okay, or energy. The, the, the majority of the energy needs to come from starch. That's your glucose precursor. That's what's going to fuel your marbling, all right, in these waggy cattle. So the higher starch you have in a feed, 
the less fat you can have in it. If you do, if you do start putting fat in a feed, you're going to increase the energy, but it's not going to be glucose energy. It's not going to necessarily fuel marbling. Now it may, it may help maintain body condition. It help, it may uh, help accelerate growth gain. Uh, and then obviously it may help increase the amount of fatty acids that are deposited in that tissue. But uh, typically, typically we will, I would say most of the, the diets we formulate for the finishing cattle will be anywhere from three to 5% fat. I would say we typically will, will never formulate over five to 6% fat in the diet primarily because the rumen bacteria cannot handle free fat in the diet. I, I've always likened fat in a, in a ration when it comes to that rumen. And it's oftentimes, you know, I'm talking to guys on these ranches, not necessarily the, the wives, but I said, it's almost like if you, if you feed too much of that free fat in the diet, it's like your wife putting a chain on the refrigerator. You cannot get into that refrigerator <laughs> and get to any food, if you have too much free fat, Desi, in that rumen, it coats your fiber particles. It'll coat your feedstuffs in that rumen, and the bacteria cannot penetrate it and get to it. So the fat uh, can increase caloric density of the ration. Again, it can help with fatty acid profile, bump them up some in the, in the end, in the meat. But if you get too carried away with it, and in my opinion, somewhere, if it's all from free fat, and I'm, I'm talking like fat from vegetable oils, tallow, uh, any any endogenous fat, like in distilled grain, corn gluten, this and that, mm-hmm. hominy, you've got to limit that to between 5 to 6% of the diet, or you will start coating fiber particles in the room, and you'll start depressing digestion, you'll start depressing intake, and you'll start depressing performance. You'll also see them become loose, the manure will become loose, just like they're, they're acidotic from too much starch. The only way you can go beyond the, the five or 6% total fat in the diet, if you want to try to do that, is by bringing what we call a rumen protected fat in, a rumen inert, a rumen bypass fat. There are a number of those on the market and they can be fed. They are very expensive. They're more expensive, obviously. But if you have, if they comprise part of that fat, you can go up to that seven, 8%. Uh, if the ration is comprised of a rumen protected fat, if it's not rumen protected, you need to limit it to five to six percent fat. Otherwise, you're not going to be happy uh, with the results you're getting. So, a little bit of fat's good, uh, and and not a problem with it in the in the ration. But if you go overboard with it, especially with what we call free fat and not rumen protected fat, you will disrupt your rumen function, and you will uh, you'll pay the price. Your animals pay the price by doing too much. So, shoot for somewhere between three to five to six percent. And no more. And if you you say, well, well Horner, I want to, I want to, I want more than that. And I, mean, I love feeding fat, this and that, or I want to try it. That, that's fine. But you're going to have to use a, a more expensive rumen bypass fat to do that. I will say along those lines, I'll let you know, uh, we're getting ready to start a study here after the first of the year here at our facility with one of those rumen bypass fats. And uh, it's primarily comprised of, of uh, palmitic acid, no oleic acid but it's in a protected form. About 85% of that fat is inert in the rumen. It means that it will go all the way through the rumen. It will not disrupt the fiber digestion in that rumen and bacterial growth. And it'll be delivered straight to the small intestine where it'll eventually be absorbed and utilized. But we're, we want to look and see if we come in in a ration. So that ration, Desi, may be a six, seven, eight percent fat from mm-hmm. the that bypass fat. 
but we want to see how much we can impact the fatty acids in the meat from that, from something like that. And if we can uh, get a bump in the oleic acid, particularly this product we're going to look, look at is almost half oleic acid, but in a protected form. Um, right. So we're going to see if we can bump that oleic acid up, you know, since oleic acid has been the one fatty acid that the Japanese have equated or correlated to the highest degree with overall health of the meat and yes. that overall umami or wow experience of the meat, uh, the, the, the oleic acid, if you're going to single one component out in that meat, the oleic acid is that one single component that has a highest correlation over any others. So we're going to see, you know, we, we you know, we already have a product that already has a tremendous wow factor, but can we make it even, even higher? Can we get even more of a wow <laughs> factor if we can bring some of these, uh, rumen bypass fats in. And then, then if, if that's the case, is there a way we can benefit from it economically? And can we justify it economically? We don't know that yet, but I think there may be some potential there and we're going to look at it. So we feel like it may not only, we may see a, a bump in marbling, but we definitely are going to be looking at and hoping we can get a bump in the, the fatty acid profile and particularly the oleic acid. So it, it, it back to your original question, we can, fat's a good thing. Too much of it's not a good thing, depending on the source of the fat, uh, but it definitely has a place. Uh, the key is you want to maximize the energy from the starch in that feed just because from a, from a sheer cost standpoint, that starch energy is going to be less expensive than the fat, the energy from the fat. The starch also, as I mentioned earlier, is going to fuel the marbling more than the fat because of the glucose aspect. The glucose, glucose is completely required to fuel marbling in that animal so uh uh so yes a little fat fine fine but just be careful when you feed too much um uh, and if you if you are feeding a high level you need to be you need to be really cognizant of the sources that those levels are coming from so because the, the, again the fat can really disrupt your rumen function if you if you overdo it well, I'm glad you told me that. I have seen tubs on the market that I know people use in the winter to supplement along with their uh, feed programs and their forage and um, their dry forage. And some of them are 10% fat. And I just thought, well, let me let me ask Dr. Horner about that. You know, you see three, five, six, ten, 10, uh, and it's supposed to, you know, bring them through in a really cold climate uh, help them with their energy. And so I just wanted to ask you that to see uh, how efficient those tubs might be. Yeah, no, no, it, it can. And it, like I said, it, it depends on what it, what else they're eating, but you've just got to really be careful when you get up to those really high mm -hmm. fat levels. And, and, and also those are going to come from free fat, some kind of oil that they're putting in, yes. or it's going to be coming from like, say a high fat distiller's grain or something that's going in that tub. Uh, you got to be careful right. with it because you can, you can basically knock your cattle off feed, just like if you were feeding too much starch and inducing acidosis. Uh, you can be impairing performance if you if you feed too much free fat. There's a limit to how much free fat we can feed an animal in a day's time, and you just got to. And I, you did you did bring up something else. I really well, I'm glad you brought it up because I want people to know this. Years ago, we had a breeder that kept sending in steaks for testing, and the steaks were beautiful. I mean, high, high marbling, beautiful ribeye size, uh, very nice steaks. But when we did the flavor profile on them, put them through a professional taste 
panel they had an off flavor and i called them and i said what are you feeding your cattle oh i got this great thing you know it was expensive um and it it helps with fat they were they had a good fatty acid profile but the flavor was really not desirable and we researched uh what they were feeding and we found out they were feeding a product that had guaranteed more omega uh threes and sixes and you know to help the fatty ass profile but they used catfish oil in the feed and the fish oil gave the meat a very odd flavor and so i just want people to be concerned with what is uh, what they're promising you, it may raise the fatty acid profile, but it may not be in a positive way. So you may not want we to found that you know, out the hard way. Point. Yeah, you may not. That's, want. And that's why I say, you know, you because, need to know what source that fat's coming from. That, that's another right, good reason. Right, right. That's, that's another good point, too. You know, we can talk about all this marbling and fatty acid and this and that and Horner can get on his soapbox and talk about all this and that and stress and this and that. But the, in the end, what we're all, what we're all working towards is that a final product that tastes wonderfully and that tastes like nothing else on the face of the earth and just like knocks people's out of their, knocks folks out of their chairs when they taste it. I remember my son-in-law, Matt, the first time he ever, I, I made waggy for him. And uh, I'll never forget this. And and it was some full blood wagyu. And he, I said, here, here you go, Matt, try this. And he goes, oh, that is the best thing I've ever put in my mouth <laughs> by far. And that that's what we all have to keep in mind is all this stuff is great. But in the end, how does that product taste? What's the flavor? Does it have that wow factor? Does it make people want more? And that's what we have to offer. Uh, in the end, but that's what we have to continually be focused on is the, the taste aspect of that beef on that plate in the end, more than anything else. That's right. And what you feed does affect your flavor profile. And no that's um, that's very no, important. No, no question it does. And that's something we've dealt with for years. If you've got, if you've got, you're feeding some type of insoled forage, silage, haylage. Sometimes you have to be careful if you if you feed moldy hay. If you're feeding oh. fat from animal sources, uh, oh my goodness, I couldn't I go on and on. Uh, we've dealt with this for years. Sometimes on your on your on your pasture, they may be picking something up from the pasture as well that gives it an off flavor uh, before they're brought in. That may that fast. Some, some folks will actually leave leave their cattle on pasture sometimes during the earlier phases of finishing and then bring them in well if you bring them in uh you better you better have them on feed probably 90 days plus minimum coming off that pasture you can also cause off flavor from that so there's a there's a huge variety of things that can cause off flavor of the beef uh, we just got to be cognizant of them I, i'm i'm typically very conservative particularly on that last phase of finishing what we call our phase two or pre-harvest phase during the last 36 months i am very 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 particular and conservative with what we put in those rations. Everything has to be extremely high quality and um, nothing that that's where, you know, we can focus on cost, this and that, and cost is always a component. But the thing is, you got to be careful feeding something just based on cost during that latter phase of finishing, because that's where you can really impact your, 
your the flavor of your beef beside you know addition to the marbling the shelf life the color all that you know and, and we focus on all that the uh you know the japanese have been uh getting premiums on color of their beef for many years uh not just the the, the how it grades out so we also try to make sure we have uh, uh help our customers with it uh, uh attain a, an end product that also has a good eye appeal appeals to the consumer has that bright cherry red has that bright white fat uh, you can also impact the color tremendously uh, in addition to the flavor if you're not careful uh, as well and then you know i think we've talked about before too you know now to the uh, uh well starting several years ago i learned of the gogo 55 program in japan you know where they're they're also getting a benefit or getting additional premiums for the fatty acid content specifically oleic acid if their carcass reaches 55 percent of lake acid or above they get additional premiums uh, uh, because of how the J- J- japanese have equated that to health uh health benefits yes. primarily. So the health uh, benefits uh, yes so so we just gotta you know we've got to be um very intentional and and cognizant of what we're feeding that animal at all times particularly that latter part of finishing because that's where you can make or break get that end product. And you may have a beautiful, and I've seen some, you may have a beautifully marbled, just like you talked about, a beautifully marbled piece of meat, like, wow. But then it tastes like, you know what? <laughs> we cannot do that. Cannot do it. And that, there's nothing more frustrating to me. So uh, you've got to be very careful on what you feed them. No no question. That We feel like that's our job. And and I sometimes I have to battle. Sometimes I'll have to battle producers. They say, "Well, Warner, I got to feed more of that. That's the cheapest thing I've got." I said, "That's fine. We'll feed that somewhere else, but you're not feeding it here, okay? Mm-hmm. Because it may be we can't take the risk of feeding it here because of how it may impact that meat flavor quality." So there are times that there, you just have to be very conservative and very cognizant of what you're putting in that animal because garbage in, garbage out, um, and and uh, not not to pinpoint any one thing, but that's if you're feeding silage. Uh, we have a lot of folks that feed silage, both here and in Japan. It's not that you can't feed it, and but you got to be, you've got to make sure that silage is good quality. You've got to make sure it's packed well. Uh, you've got to feed it out right, properly, manage it as you're as you're feeding it, and uh, 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 otherwise you can affect the quality of beef tremendously just from feeding a fermented product uh, that may not be just right. Uh, as well so so we have we have heard that feed a lot of inside forages or silages and and work with them but uh, the quality is very critical but also i will tell you that we typically are more conservative with them there toward the end just because of the potential impact they can have on the flavor of the beef uh, right not just them you can different oils and so forth too but but oftentimes silage can be the culprit if it's not really good quality or if you have a a, a bunker or a pit full of silage and you're getting toward the end, you're, you're just a month or two away from putting up new forage and you get toward the end. In the 38 years I've been working as a nutritionist, 90% of my problems with silage being fed is always at the end of the year before the new crop comes in. And we're back to that very, very back portion of the pit if it's in a, if it's in a bunker silo and it can get pretty nasty, moldy. Uh, you can get a, a quite a variety of mycotoxins in it. And uh, you got to be really careful with that as well. So just you just got to have quality ingredients coming in the animal's mouth all the time. Or you can you can definitely affect not just the quality but the the flavor of that of that beef in the end. 
Right. I agree. Well, Dr. Horner, I have really enjoyed having you on this podcast, and I know the listeners are just uh, really thinking about everything you've been saying. Me too. I've got to go back. I'm ready to go read all my labels and see what I'm doing. And and also, uh, you you sell product and you have developed products. So if any of you want to call Dr. Horner and talk to him about uh, what he has, I'm sure he'd be available to... um, help you get started in the right way. Desi, I appreciate that. Well, I'll be glad to help you however I can. Yeah. Uh, my staff and I, yeah, we, we, we love what we do. Uh, my daughter, my son-in-law, I couldn't do this without them. Uh, my wonderful family, my, my son, daughter-in-law, my seven precious grandkids, they keep me going. Uh, our employees, uh, I tell you, we, we all love what we do. We have a passion for what we do. We'll help folks however we can. Um, we, uh, we do have our own manufacturing facility that we built back in 2001, and we, we can. But also, we work with a lot of other feed companies in, in different areas here and in Japan. You know, we'll send menus to them, formulations to them. Uh, but, yes, we do have, we do have a, that and a, a line of different feeds, minerals, uh, supplements, uh, all-natural animal health products. Uh, and then we've got our our, our, our feeding operation here. We're getting ready to open our second barn up, by the way, here. Uh, my son, son-in-law told me two weeks from uh, yesterday. So uh, two, two weeks from now, we're opening our second barn. Uh, so we'll have about 2,000 head of Wagyu here, primarily full bloods, uh, here probably within the next two months. And then we'll, then we'll have to decide when we're going to build our next one. <laughs> so. Oh my so, goodness. Uh, well, we'll okay. have to get some video and and bring it to the public sounds good desi hey desi again That'd thank be you great. for what you do thank you so much for what you do and your commitment to this industry we're indebted to you uh love working with you in any way we can we can help you too in your commitment to to uh to what you're doing uh you just you let me know what we're in <laughs> Send me the samples. That's all I need. And and I also would like to call out, I'm doing some research on uh, uh, the different component, you know, the composition of a red Wagyu and black Wagyu beef. So that's in our, uh, we're, we're doing that too. And our fatty acids, that's our main program is we're doing fatty acids now. Yes, that's good. Yeah, we you know we're feeding out quite a few reds too here at our facility. That's that's very oh great. Okay, good because yeah. I have to know you know when I go to a packing house it has to be just reds and I have to know that they're you know reds and interesting. Um, and well, we're you just doing keep that. Doing what you're doing, what you're doing, and you let let us know however we can help you. Okay, I'll be bugging you to death. Let's <laughs> do it. All right. right. Sounds great. Well, thank you, Dr. Horner. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed this. And uh, we'll see you next time on Herd Nerds. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.